All right, what we're going to do is we'll go ahead and read chapter one first. And because April just told me how she loves to read in, in public. Um, can you read chapter one first? In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kevlar Canal. Kevlar? Uh, yeah, like Kevlar. Kevlar. Yeah. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile, King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Kevar, Kevar, whatever, canal. <laughs> if it's Chaldeans, it's got to be Kevar, otherwise it's Chaldeans and Chevar, huh? <laughs> we'll see, it's, it's a rough cut. Um, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. They each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of barrel. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and, and awesome, and the rims of all four were, were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sounds of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, <clears throat> I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. 
and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Okay. <clears throat> um, whenever people tell me that they don't need like a teacher or the church to interpret the Bible for them, I'm like, oh yeah, what's Ezekiel 1 talking about? It's about UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> I actually heard about it. It's a real thing. Yeah, no, it is yeah, a real thing. I've actually heard of it. It's both. yeah. So like, here's the problem. As soon as people, this is this is a human habit. We see something strange, and we want to familiarize it. So whatever we're familiar with. So what this sounds to us like is some sort of machine, like a UFO or something. And you're familiar with UFOs that much. You would know yeah. Okay. Well, that's, like, no, that, I've heard pastors say that. Yeah. Th there are people who believe this is UFO stuff. Because um, that's the answer to everything. Oh, the pyramids. We don't know how, how they're built. Aliens. Uh, we don't know how the universe, because we don't want to accept God making the universe, so it must be aliens. Like, it's always aliens, so this must be aliens as well. But we have a habit of doing that with texts, because, uh, frankly, a little work in the background would help you understand. This is actually easily... E easy to understand. If you understand the background, if you understand what this is imaging, the whole point, everything. If you don't, then yeah, it's like, wow, this is weird. And Ezekiel is one of those books. I looked online to try to find someone lecturing through the Ezekiel in a church. I didn't find a single thing. Um, not a single church. I've never been in a church that went through Ezekiel. Um, even the seminary lectures that I did find online, they were pretty weak going through it or whatever. It's a difficult book because it's strange to us. But again, if you understand the background, it won't be. And we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. There's a whole Calvary series on it. On oh, is there? Okay. Yeah, where a lot of this really bad UFO stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, so there is a lot of stuff that's like garbage. But I mean, I mean like... but he went through the entire. Oh, book. did he really? We went through yeah. the. Yeah, okay. he went the entire. Ca it's Calvary. It was you know like ca it Calvary somewhere in Washington State. It's like Steve, a, Steve Winnery or something. And it was a church that did it? Yeah. Oh, okay. And That's the first church. he went through the church. whole thing, but it was really... Really bad. It was really, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to look at that. Well, maybe I don't want to look at it. You don't <laughs> want to. I was looking for something that was more you know, edifying or whatever to see if anybody had actually gone through it. Um, I've never heard of a church going through it, so that's interesting that one actually has gone through it, though. And I, I imagine Chuck Smith would have gone through it. I mean, people who actually went through the Bible at some point. So maybe that's where he's getting that. It's the Calvary Chapel who did it, or just like, okay, yeah, yeah, Calvary. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so to back up to, to one, now it came about in the thirtieth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebor, among the exiles, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. No one knows what thirtieth year is, but I think the best explanation for thirtieth year is that Ezekiel is turning 30. And the reason why is because 30 years old is when you can enter and become a priest. And he is a priest. And so 30 is when he become a priest. And if you look at the visions, they end to where he's around 50. 50 is when priests retire. So um, the interesting thing is, is that, though, he's not in Jerusalem in the temple. He's actually in the exile. He was part of the first, one of the first deportations in the Babylonian exile. 
he's now in Babylon by this canal and, um, and suddenly receives these visions for the people in exile. This is an amazing thing because a lot of the people are feeling they, they're in despair, they're in exile, there's no hope for them. Um, and uh, some are actually hanging on to a hope that maybe they'll just come back or whatever, but now it's going to be that this priest in exile is going to tell them what's what. And at this point, when it, the book begins, Jerusalem has not been destroyed, the temple has not been destroyed, this is the first deportation, and so everything is actually still intact, and many false prophets are coming out and saying, well, God's not going to destroy his city and his people. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, that's basically the message of the, the false prophets. And so now God is giving a vision to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel throughout the book is going to speak both to the people left in Jerusalem, uh, prophesy that Jerusalem, in fact, will be destroyed and its temple, that God's judgment is upon the people. But then he's going to turn once Jerusalem has been destroyed, because in the middle of the book, a messenger comes and delivers news that Jerusalem has been wiped away <clears throat> and and the book's going to turn then and god's going to say okay you've been punished really really badly let me now speak to you kindly and tell you that i'm actually going to save you i'm going to change you i'm going to give you this new covenant that you see in jeremiah is going to talk about the new covenant um I, i'm going to give you a new heart i'm going to change you i'm going to restore you to what was even far far better than before and so that's basically the flow of the book. The first 33 chapters will be judgment. So it's going to be the wrath of God, God calling uh, Israel, basically, well, Judah to repentance, God calling the exiles to repentance, and then even calling the surrounding nations who are going to gloat over Jerusalem's destruction to repentance or basically tell them that he's going to judge them if, if they do these wicked things. Then 34 through 48, the last part of the book is basically God restoring Israel um, through the Messianic king, David himself, ruling over, over them um, and restoring the temple into a greater temple that they'd never even thought of before, all of that sort of thing. Is everybody familiar with what happens with the exile? I don't know if I should just briefly talk about that at all. Um... Are you guys familiar with, like, rather than ask, I'm just going to say it. Okay, so I'll, I'll just give you a brief, a briefing on it. So what happens is this. The Israel's great. Um, they're, they're unified. And then, of course, after Solomon, they break in two. Uh, the northern kingdom never worships God. They go off into Baal worship. They don't have a single good king in northern Israel. They still worship Yahweh, but it's kind of like, you know, mixed in with Baal worship and and the and Ashtoreth and all those gods or whatever. Um, God sends the Assyrians to deport them. And deportation for the Assyrians meant we're going to basically mix you into the nations to where you'll be wiped away. There'll be nothing left of you. And assimilation. so yeah, assimilation and interbreeding. So we're going to take all your great people, move them into Assyria, scatter them throughout and interbreed and, and just basically dilute you, wipe you out as a people, and then take other people and move them into your land. And that's what they did to Israel. And so that's why like the Samaritans end up being mixed people because it's the people who were left who are usually the poor people who weren't anything that they didn't want to deport. 
and uh, mixing in with these foreigners that they had brought into the land. So their their religion was kind of still worshiping Yahweh, but kind of weird and and different as well. Are the, is this information from the Bible or other historical documents? This is from the Bible and from the Assyrian annals, and then from the Babylonian annals as well. So this stuff is all in. Not all of it, but th- this stuff is, we can see it also in their annals as well. So it's both biblical and that. What can we read in the Bible to learn about that? Um, if you want to learn about that, that's more like Kings and Chronicles. Um, that'll talk about the deportations. And uh, Ezekiel gives you some information of what's going on in the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah will give you some information or whatever. The Assyrian deportation, though, is really Kings and Chronicles. Because the people are wiped away, that's it. That's it for them. And what was the time frame on that? The Assyrian deportation is 8th century. It's around 720. Okay. Um, in the meantime, Assyria is the big empire at this time. That's why they're coming through. And, you know, northern Israel rebelled, and that's why they came in and wiped them out. They want southern Israel, that is Judah, to now pay tribute to Assyria. Well, Hezekiah was like, well, I'm not going to pay tribute to you. And that's where Sennacherib comes, and he, like, you know, uh, Sennacherib actually has the same account. It's like, I, I uh, captured Ezekiel, or I shut him up like a bird in a cage, meaning that he surrounded the city and he couldn't get out. And this is on uh, the um, Sennacherib's, uh, what's it called? The Black Obelisk, I think. No, that's different. I'm forgetting. Anyway, it's in one of the Assyrian texts or whatever. Uh, and then it's also in the Bible in Kings. Um... Sennacherib, of course, is sent back to Assyria, but Hezekiah is worried that Assyria is going to come back, and so he decides to make buddies with the Babylonians. And while making buddies with them, he brings them into the city, and he shows them all the stuff that the temple has in it. And, you know, the, the Babylonians are like, hey, wow, that looks like some great stuff. And so that later will lead to the Babylonians saying, hey, uh, we want you to pay tribute to us and we remember all the great stuff you've got in your temple. We'd like that. Um, And so there's some compliance, but essentially uh, over time the kings are like, no, we're not going to pay you tribute. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and says, yes, you will, besieges the city. That's the first deportation. Takes them away because he wins, of course. Uh, then there's, he, he installs uh, a king on the throne, which is uh, Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim rebels, so he takes him, actually Jehoiakim, I think he might actually kill. Um, he installs his kid Jehoiachin. It's actually still Chin, but it's, well, you said Chin to distinguish. Um he rebels, and then he establishes uh, a guy, I think his name's like Metaniah, I forget, originally, but then he's renamed Zedekiah. And he rebels, and then after he rebels, that's the final destruction. We're not there yet in Ezekiel, we're at the first deportation at this point. But as Ezekiel moves along, we're going to go through these deportations and destruction of Jerusalem and whatnot when we reach uh, 33. So Ezekiel's dealing with Judah. Yes, because northern Israel's gone forever, gone forever. Which is interesting because there's tons of promises that God's going to bring his people back. And so how can he do that if they're wiped away? And that goes into, like, because he's going to include Gentiles and the nations. And that's where his people went into the nations. And so he's going to include nations or whatever. It ends up being a blessing for the nations. Mm -hmm. 
um, because Israel's assimilated into them, and now God's just going to consider the nations as, as part of his lot that he's going to draw from. So this is where we're at. Ezekiel is a priest. That's why he's in the first deportation. Uh, the Babylonians have a different view of deportation. They believe you should just take the group, go ahead and let them stay in their group. So, you know, you've got a Chinatown. You don't have to assimilate everybody. They can actually stay in their group or whatever. And in that regard, they're kept that way. They're not assimilated into the people. Um, they're preserved. And so they're able, God's able then to bring them back into the land afterward because they actually are, are held together as a group. All right. Um, another thing to, to note about verse 1, and this is very important, is that the heavens open and he's seeing visions. Very important. This is not literal stuff that he's seeing. God is not a big man on a throne um, angels don't actually have wings. That's a myth. That's when people are reading things literally. Um, angels don't have wings. What, what do angels look like? Nope, no wings. Wings is a symbol. It's an ancient Near Eastern symbol that we'll talk about or whatever. What do angels look like when they actually appear in narrative in the Bible? Yeah, they even call them men. Like the man Gabriel I saw. or what, I mean, it's, just, it's that sort of thing. So they look like men now. Do they sometimes have the glory of the Lord? Yeah, I mean, the angel who descends on Christ's throne, it says that his appearance was like lightning. Um, so, I mean, he they're majestic, but they also can just look like regular men, which is why you can entertain angels and not know it. Um, speaking of hospitality, tra travelers who are Christian coming in, and hospitality is you're housing these Christian travelers that you don't know, and so you can house angels that you don't even know you were housing and taking care of while they're traveling. This is written the same way, like Revelation kind of written, where it's done yes. visions, like right. Yeah, so when Ezekiel's like flying to different places, people are like, that's kind of weird. It's like a Star Trek thing going on. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, it's a vision, dude. He's not actually flying to Jerusalem and then back and, you know. <laughs> but people don't read, they miss that part and they end up, even the, the, the UFO comments are like, yeah, he saw a UFO. It's like, well, in a vision? Because he's not literally saying it. So it's like, why is God showing him a UFO? That doesn't even make sense. It's like, hey, look at this cool stuff that's out in the universe. <laughs> look at this toy I got. Look at this. So when it says, as I looked, right. he's, he's looking in his head. Yes. So, so you get that in Revelation as well. So that's why they call them like see prophets or seers. They mm -hmm. see. Um, they, they're envisioning, they're looking, they're seeing. So what he's saying is I saw in the vision. Yeah. Um, he's not actually seeing anything. Yeah. Like, you know, literally. And, and they often go into trances. I think we've talked about this before. This is how prophets receive information. They go into a trance. Their eyes are usually wide open, but they're in a trance. Uh, versus like the novice prophet, who's not really a prophet. The novice gets stuff in dreams because he can't go into a trance. So it has to, he has to wait until he goes to bed. All right. When they do have visions, is it corroborated by somebody else around them? Or no. Oh, okay. So that's why you can get false prophets because so how what are you supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do with the prophets' visions? What scripture do they have? Yeah. And that was not through a vision. That was God that was the only time other than Jesus when God actually came down 
and delivering it. So they're not relying upon a vision judging other visions. It's God literally coming down and saying, this is my will, this is who I am. And, and then from there, you judge visions to see if they're in continuity with that. You know the false prophets then when they're not in continuity with uh, the law. All right, any other questions on uh, verse 1 through 3? Verses 1 through 3. Is there any significance of him being the son of Uzi? No, just the fact that he was a, pro- or, or a priest. Okay. Um, so he's, he's a priest, and now he's actually becoming a prophet, which is... Just as a little a, a note or whatever, if you read scholarly things, they're trying to constantly divide prophets and priests. As though, oh, this is prophetic literature, and this is priestly literature, and the prophets are against the priests, and they have this whole theory in the background. This is liberal scholarship. Um, here you have a priest and a prophet, and they both are one, and it's together, and you know you don't have any sort of conflict or whatever. So that whole theory is, I think, should be thrown out. When you talk about how priests right right they also the high priest tended to receive actual revelation as well um so the priest always kind of functioned at least the high priest functioned as a prophet as well and we see that even in the new testament the high priest is still getting prophecy like each year or whatever uh, when he prophet when they prophesy like that that priest prophesied about Christ dying and and whatnot, even though he was instrumental in crucifying Christ, it's like oh okay, this goes to show you can still be wicked as a priest. All right, so w- what is all this stuff? So he sees this storm wind coming, uh, coming out of the north. It's a great cloud with fire flashing continually, bright light around it. Notice a lot, a lot about glowing metal, bright light, lightning flashing, um, very majestic. This is lost on us, I think, because we can CGI this, right? Like, we probably have seen this in a movie, like all these great things. But imagine being in this culture, never seeing anything like this at all, mm-hmm. seeing just the absolute power and brilliance and majesty of this vision. It is just, it's amazing. Um what do you think it represents? Glory. Yeah, why do you think that? The text tells you that. <laughs> We're not... So opposite of what they are. Right. Yeah. Um, well, so we don't have to guess what it is, right? Because the end of the text says this is the glory of the Lord or whatever. <laughs> I'm like, but shouldn't it, it, we be getting our answer? <laughs> You're like, that's what the text says. I should have <laughs> so it's, it's the, it, this is all symbolic of the glory and presence of the Lord. This is going to contrast Ezekiel throughout the book. About 93 times he's going to call him son of man over and over again. Son of man is what's called a Gentilic. It's like son of Israel means Israelite. Son of Ammon means Ammonite. Son of man means human or mortal. So he calls Ezekiel constantly, hey, mortal, uh, go to this people and prophesy. So even Ezekiel, who basically is a righteous man, is a priest and everything, God's like, hey, let's remember who you are and who these people are in comparison to me. You are a mortal. And yet 
And, and so, one, that means you should be terrified of who I am to be in, in opposition to me as you are, as your people are. But two, also, you should realize the love that I have for you in that I'm going to save you even though you're just immortal and you're not worth saving in comparison to me and my glory and majesty and the sons of God around me and whatnot. <clears throat> and so it's an important, uh, important contrast, I think, between the two. Now, let, we, let's talk about some of the imagery. I wanted to... Uh, Alexander, where's the remote for the TV? I wanted to show you, because we have ample examples of this uh, imagery. So right there you can see it's got a human head, wings of an eagle, and the body and feet of a bull. Um, this is called a lamasu. And there are, there are different creatures, though. This is just one of many of them. Sorry. I'll give you a clearer picture, I think. These are all over the Middle East. Um, they guard palaces. They guard the entrance into the parts of the city where the palace and the temple are. The palace and the temple are usually joined together in the ancient Near East because the king is a living idol or image of the uh, of the god, the main god of the city. Usually the main god of the empire, obviously, because it's the, the chief god. There's a couple there. Um, sometimes they have uh, faces of eagles. Sometimes they have bodies of lions. Uh, you're familiar with the Sphinx, which is, you know, the head of a human, body of a lion. Um, there are griffins, uh, where it's the head of an eagle, body of a lion. It, it basically, you have all these components that you have here. Here you've got four, right? So the, the faces are made up of what in the bodies? It's what, what are the four creatures? Lion, lion eagle, man, man, and bull. And bull. So that's all extremely common. The, the wings are the wings of an eagle. Uh, there's four faces, of course, lion, eagle, bull, and human. Feet are those of the, the young bull. So all it is is representing angels who represent themselves, are symbols themselves, of the presence and glory of God. That's all it is. No UFOs needed. Um, very simple. So it would have been understood by this everyone. Is what they would have thought of. Yeah, immediately. immediately. Yeah, immediately. When they think of an angel, is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. When the Bible says angel, this means messenger. Mm -hmm. But when it's when they're when they're depicted, they're, they tend to be depicted with like wings and things like that, in terms of the imagery and, and protection. So even on the ark, when they make two cherubs, they that's why the they likely have the wings going on, because these things have wings. The reason why they're composite creatures is because a composite creature usually means a supernatural creature. So it represents that. They each, each thing represents something different. Like lions represent strength. Eagles represent uh, like the protection and the, the fact that it's like a heavenly creature. Uh, bulls usually are both strength and fertility. 
So prosperity, all that sort of thing with the bull. And then humans represent the, the uh, superior mind of the creature. That's the closest thing we have to really represent like a mind and, and whatnot uh, among creatures. We're the highest in, in, in the physical creation, and so that's, the, that's the, usually the human, human part of it that represents that. So in that Ezekiel one that I watched from Calvary, he was trying to make a connection between the four faces being symbolic of who Jesus is in the Gospels. Yeah, the four Gospels. Yeah. Yeah. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, so there's... It the, seemed it, like a stretch when I heard it, but I don't know what... Well... there's anything there or not. No. So <laughs> I, I think... Here's the thing. If you look at the history of interpretation, it tends to be in, incredibly allegorical. And that's why I said originally we're trying to find something with which we're familiar. So when, if you're familiar with Christ and you're like, this is crazy symbolic, you're going to relate it to those things that have to do with Christ. Oh, four. Well, there's four Gospels. Now yeah. here, the four likely represents what? We talked about this in Revelation. Revelation uses this imagery too. What, what is four? four corners. Yeah, four corners of the world. Um, this is strictly Mesopotamian thought. You don't see four corners of the world before the literature in the Bible even until it interacts with Mesopotamian thought. Um, four corners of the world, that idea. So why then, you guys tell me, you interpret it, why would you have four faces on these creatures looking out toward the four faces of the world, what do you think that might represent? Yeah. Yeah, maybe omnipresence, omniscience. You get that also with the eyes on the wheels. So uh, lots of eyes usually represent omniscience or that the, the supernatural beings know and are aware of what's going on. Um, it's easy to know what the what what does the throne represent, right? That's an easy one. Authority. Right, sovereignty of God, authority of God. What? Why is it on? Why is it on wheels? It's all hmm. And what like, verse are you in? I'm on all of them, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just discussing the imagery in general in, in one. Let me let me find the wheels. No, but I wanted to put notes by the scriptures you're talking about. Yeah. Ezekiel saw the wheel. Well, his authority wasn't isn't isn't contained in one place. It's I don't know wheels or toes everywhere. Yeah. So 16, yeah. 15, 16. Yeah. Yeah. And twenty. I mean, it's it's all throughout. Um. You told us when we were talking about Revelation or something. I think you referenced Ezekiel. Yeah, because he draws from Ezekiel at that yeah. point. So remember in the ancient world, gods are tied to a, spe a specific area. Oh, this is, yeah, to show that he's God of everything. Right. He's mobile. Right. A god moving in to another land where there's another powerful god is unheard of. Maybe you'd get a bigger god moving into a land where it's an inferior deity or something. But this is, their god is Marduk, who is basically just get, given them an empire who is the mightiest of the gods. He's, he's supposedly the god who split the sea in half in order to make creation. Uh, the sea used to be this giant demon goddess called Tiamat, and he basically just kills her 
and makes the universe out of or whatever. So this is an extraordinarily just he's the he's the storm god. Of course, it's always the storm god. Um, he's the storm god, so he's the most powerful god. He has lightning uh, at his disposal. And so he's the most powerful god. Well, some of that imagery, even like the lightning here, is associated with God, and yet he's moving into the land of this deity. Um, so it's unusual. It, it's, it's where the theology of the Bible is very different than the ancient Near Eastern world, and it would just make, it would kind of jolt them. They would be like, this is unusual. Same thing in, in Egypt. This is why Pharaoh's like, yeah, I, he's not saying that Yahweh doesn't exist. He's just saying, I don't know Yahweh, and I don't care. I'm in my land. Ra rules here. I'm a manifestation of Ra. You're not going to be able to overcome me. And then one by one, God topples these gods all the way down to Ra and the, and the Pharaoh. Um, and that's why everyone, when they go out of the land, has heard in, in Canaan, and they're terrified. Because this is not a usual thing. Usually your God protects your area, and no one can do anything about it unless you sin against your God. Um, and then he'll let Pete, he won't protect you. And so now you can be overthrown. And so they thought the reason why they can come in, into these other lands is that these people sin against their God or their God's more powerful than theirs. They would have never thought this God is more powerful and he's going to move into our land. Um, and so this is a vision letting the people know I'm not tied to the land. I chose that land for you, but I, I'm, I rule over all land. I rule over the entire world. That's, that's such a common idea for us. It's like, yeah, duh, God rules over the whole world. But it's not a common idea for them. There is no God who rules over the entire world. Again, maybe when you have an empire, but even then it can be just lost and some other God can rise up. It's just, Israel's deity is just completely foreign to them. So lots of ancient Near Eastern imagery, but the theology is completely different which is what you know, we expect throughout the Bible. But he's talking to Israelites. Right, he's talking to Ezekiel at the moment. So, so this is just the culture. That's why the Israelites are recognizing the language that he's using, because that's what's common in the culture. It's, everywhere around. Right, so, no, it's, it's, common in, it's common in the uh, in Mesopotamia. Okay. But Israel has now become very very familiar with Mesopotamia because of Assyria and because of Babylon, and especially because Ezekiel has gone into Babylon, he's very familiar with all these images and whatnot. Ezekiel is not going to be for Jerusalem. Throughout, as we go along, God is going to say, I don't actually care if Jerusalem repents or not anymore. I'm going to destroy it no matter what. They've sinned too much. I've had it with them, and he makes this statement. If the most righteous many, he says, if Job were in it, and Daniel were in it, um, I forget, who else does he say? It's Job, Daniel, and um, and one other I forget. I can't remember. What did he say? Oh, I, oh. I think it's Noah, right? <laughs> oh, maybe Noah, yeah. He says, if they were in it, I still wouldn't spare the city. That's how much he's like, no. So the hope is for the exiles. He's really not saying this for Jerusalem. He's saying it to the exiles for them because he doesn't expect Jerusalem to repent. And even if the, he did, or they did, he's, he's like, I'm not going to forgive them anyway. There's a lot of application for us there and a lot of, it's kind of scary uh, as we go into those passages. Think God's not going to bless America forever? <laughs> no, Why would God bless America? 
Uh oh! Don't let him take you out on a soundbite right there. That's, uh, <laughs> I was watching this thing. This is this is off topic or whatever. We can edit this part on the thing. But um, the Jeremiah Wright thing. Have you ever listened to that sermon in context? I actually would be like, oh yeah, I kind of agree. But it's taken out of context to make it seem like he's just like damning America. His point was that ultimately God does not bless any nation for any reason. If you do wickedness, God will destroy you. And there's a lot of wickedness that America has done along with other nations. So God is not tied to a nation. He'll judge all nations. That was the point. I mean, I don't agree with his his liberation theology, which I think is bad. But ultimately, the point of the sermon I agree with. Yeah. The TV was just going. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, along with this chariot, there's this thing with the spirit, the stuff of the spirit. Like the spirit moves the creatures, and then um, it's like in the wheels, and it seems to be the spirit of the uh, the person on top of the chariot. Um, there's a lot of debate over spirit in the Old Testament. Ruach is the word. Functions a lot like pneuma in the New Testament. It can, it can mean wind. Um, or it can mean spirit. And Ezekiel seems to play on that quite a bit because you have like wind and you have spirit and it, which one is it? But it seems to be that it's the spirit of God and Ruach is the spirit of God that creates in Genesis. Uh, so when it says that everything's like chaotic, then the spirit hovered, spirit of God hovered over the waters, that's the Ruach. Um, I think that's what this is here because after the spirit moves basically God around, if you want to put it that way, he's going to speak through word, and he's going to create his people through this. And creation is going to come in the midst of chaos and evil in order to get them to repent and to make them into new creatures, which is that whole, I'm going to, you know, resurrect you and give you a new heart and that sort of thing. Um, The so this is a chariot, right? It's the throne of God on a chariot that's movable, and it can go out to war in another land. It can come in judgment. It can also come in deliverance, but that's the presence of God that's movable, and it's not bound to a specific area at all. What is Ezekiel's, I was going to say Isaiah, Ezekiel's response to the glory of God that he sees here? Yeah, right? He drops down on his face. What verse are we in? Uh, this is, um, I think it's 28, right? Yeah. Yeah, so as the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. So he responds in worship to this whole thing at the beauty of God, at this majesty of God that's described in this way. Now, it's really important. You don't get this in in English, but when he describes these things, he keeps using the Hebrew word demut, which means likeness. And he'll even say it's like a likeness or it's like the appearance of. So that tells you right away, he's not even seeing literal things in the vision. He's just describing that it's kind of like this. So what he really means by like or likeness is this is a symbol that represents something else. It's not actually the way things are, or it's not what God looks like. It's not what a throne he's sitting on looks like. 
It's not what angels look like. It's not any of that. These are symbols that represent something else. And so that's very important to understand because, again, if you read this literally, you're going to think angels have wings and, you know, that sort of thing. And you ring a bell and, every, you know. <laughs> All right. A any other questions on chapter one? I was kind of curious when I read this recently, verse 19, and then it seems like, is it 21? seems to like repeat. It's like it says the same thing twice. Yeah. I wonder if that was a scribal error, if that was A lot of scholars think it is, yeah. Or when it talks about, and each of their wings did this, and each of their wings did this, and it like repeats it, and then the wheels did this, and the wheels did that. Yeah. There's a lot of similar Hebrew words, so if you were a scribe, um, there's a lot where your eyes will jump. In fact, I have, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's like this little pointy stick with a hand on the end, it's called a yod. And um, Jews typically use it to read Hebrew because it's real easy for your eyes to jump if you're not pointing, if you're not keeping track of where you are. Really easy for your eyes to jump. Happens all the time. Everyone who's ever read in a class, their eyes will jump. It happens with Greek Why as well. <laughs> because a yod means hand, and, and so it's it's actually a hand that's pointing like this. So it's just, it's just well, you. Why can't you just use your actual finger? Oh, use your finger? Yeah. Why can't you? Use you your can, finger? but it, it, after a while, it, like your hand's been oh, rubbing okay. against the text, and it just you can wear out the text, you can wear out your it hand. Just seems strange. Yeah. So they use it. It's basically just to help them. So you them. don't touch the print because it was correct. Right. It was written, and it wasn't yeah. like our. Computer. And I, I, I got mine as I think Allison gave it to me for a gift or somebody gave it for. Did you give it? For, was that you? Got, yeah, I got it for me. Was that you? You don't even remember. Well, it was years ago. It was like when we were in seminary. The days kind yeah, there of it is, right there. That's the odds. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty. I was expecting. Oh well, thank you. After you all made fun of it. Right, but it was but you understand why you're not like smudging yeah, I, ink I and you're not like wearing your finger out. <laughs> April. You should take our reading game to the next level with those things. I'm gonna tell <laughs> I'm gonna tell Jeff to make you read tons and then you're gonna be like, I sure wish I had a yod now. <laughs> Where's my yod? Yeah, so you, you, you use this to follow along. I'm gonna start using that. I'm gonna get one. Yeah, I mean yeah. But I mean in the in the in the original languages it's really easy for your eyes to skip if you don't use something to keep track of where you are. And also, because the text is smaller, it's kind of hard to use your big finger <laughs> and go down. So there's good I justification was, for I it. I was just curious. <laughs> Sorry. How dare you? Sorry, something, April. All right. I mean, board is on anti-Semitic. That's fine. I, just, uh, <laughs> I, I only, you know, married an Arab. So. Yeah, that, that's what they all say. <laughs> oh, I've got a, fr I've got my friends are Jewish. <laughs> all right. Any, any other questions on two? We'll go into one. One in th the the rest of the introduction are basically it's two is a short chapter and it's like a, just fifteen verses in the third chapter. Everybody's got it. You really, really, I just want to hear from now on that it's just not UFOs. That's all I care about. <laughs> I didn't see how that was reading it. I'm like, I don't see how we got UFOs. Well, because, so let's imagine you did not understand anything that I just said, all right? So suddenly this giant thing that sounds like a machine 
is moving with four uh, wheels that not just wheels but wheels in wheels. So maybe it's like generating like, like this crazy looking spaceship. Right. And then there's like something above it that looks like crystal and it's all like jewels and it's like <laughs> it, there's fire and lightning shooting. It's hard to distance because I, I literally, my mind went straight to Revelation. It did not seem yeah. like an alien thing to me. But yeah. I already came Well, and then I think they use like the sound too. Right. Right. It sounds like a, an engine going or whatever, that roaring sound or whatever. Yeah. The sound of tumult, it's only that, that word in Hebrew is only used a couple of times. It's, it's uh, the word that's used to refer to like an army. Mm-hmm. That's like together that make making a bunch of sound or an army on the march. Oh. So it's just like a really loud, loud sound. Okay. Or or you guys when you come into Bible study oh God, first. I said the Bible <laughs> and common sense combined. <laughs> don't see how you could get you. But see, if you if you don't have context and you just <laughs> you read the Bible, it. again, you're just trying to familiarize it. You're trying to make it with something familiar. You know, yeah, that's the context. So it's like, well, what could this be? It's when people read like Daniel nine and they think, well, this is about Christ because they see Messiah and atonement, and they're like, oh, this must be about Christ. Well, that it's like, makes no, it's a little not. bit more sense because at least it has something biblical in it. Right. But going to a UFO, I'm like, you're just going. Well, but if there. you believe in UFOs and things, and you think that's, that's where the Bible came from, then you'd be like, oh yeah, there it is. That's true. So the first chapter is more figurative speech, not to be yes. taken literally. All symbolic. We can so symbolic, but then we can trust that. Ezekiel's call that he, what he's reiterating is is uh, right on point is right is uh, the, it's more of a correct representation it's not being it's when God basic. speaks to him you yeah. mean yes so when God speaks to him when not, he's, he's still calling when God is speaking to him so it's not correct yeah right uh, this is being written down by the way this is a good point I'm glad you actually said that why is this being written down they don't need it written down they have no need for this to be written down. He's telling it to them. Why, why is it being written down? Yeah, one of the things that God's been saying, you're going to see it here, is that uh, the people are obstinate and they're not going to listen to Ezekiel. It's actually the next group that will listen to Ezekiel. So it's being written down for a different group, not the one to whom it's actually being spoken. The second reason why it's written down, according to Peter, why is the, all, the entire Old Testament written down? For our learning. Yeah, for us. So it's really important. This book is not just some ancient relic that's written to Israel and isn't it neat to study history. And It's, not, it's, it's boring to study that. Um, this book has been written down for you. So God can speak to you. And you're going to read, even though this is a weird chapter symbolism... Parts of Ezekiel are going to be like that, but other parts are going to be like, wow, I feel like this was directly written to the church and me. Um, and so it's, it's extremely relevant uh, to us, even though it's not written to us, it's, but it is written down for us. All right. Uh, chapter two. Anyone else want to read? Yeah, Amber. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed, tr- transgressed against me this very day. 
The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a, re for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are, I'm sorry, I have trouble with R's, guys. They are a rebellious house. For you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and had writing on it, and had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on, on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Okay, mm. again, is that literally eating a scroll? Um, if you want to think of a vision, think of it as a dream. So it's like you being in a dream, and in a dream, God handed you a scroll and you ate it in the dream. Mm -hmm. um, you're not literally doing that. So Son of Man, we talked about that a little bit. Uh, the Spirit enters him, stands him on his feet, and uh, he tells him that, look, I'm going to send you to these people, and they're going to be like, thank you so much for that message. Uh, it was really, it, was, it changed my life. And you did, you know, here, here, let's, you know, what can we do for you? We honor you. Now, what does he actually say is going to happen instead? <laughs> They're not going to listen. Um, this is what usually happens, by the way. When you get people who are in sin, it's usually not, hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for rebuking me. I didn't know I was outside of fellowship with God. I uh, appreciate it. Um, it's instead, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I don't care what you say. There's a point in Ezekiel when the people actually do listen to Ezekiel and they love hearing him speak. They love hearing him. They, they get stirred up emotionally by hearing him speak. But they don't actually do what he says. And Ezekiel's going to call them out and say, you're just, you're just building judgment for yourself. I don't care that you like what I say or you somehow think it's like great and everything. You're not living accordingly. So who cares that you like it? So in, in both ways, he's, he's going to get both. He's going to get both people saying, you're a false prophet. Oh, everybody's wrong but you. Because, of course, all the false prophets are saying, no, God's not going to judge us. We're his people. He's not going to destroy Jerusalem. He's not going to destroy the temple. That's his temple. He's going to preserve it. And this is the common thought of the day. It's the common thought of the prophets. Everybody believes them. And here comes this one guy saying, no, actually, you're all wrong. Which, of course, in our day is viewed as arrogance as much as it is in theirs. More so ours, though, right? Because in our day, you've got relativism working against you. And this is where I am going to talk about the Enlightenment a little bit. <laughs> just to bring from our previous study a little bit in why is it arrogant to say that you know what's true and other people don't especially other religious people it's not like he's talking he's not he's not saying the pagans are wrong he's saying these other religious teachers are wrong well it's, it's exclusive and can you really you know, can anybody really know the truth everyone has their own truth 
Right. They're all interpreting truth. There, there isn't. So the the dumb dumb version of relativism is there's no absolute truth. Almost no one believes that. There are people who do believe it, but it's easily refutable. You can just say, well, is that an absolute truth that there's no absolute truth, and you can show that it's like contradictory. The actual version of relativism that most of our culture believes and most of the church believes is there is an absolute truth, and the church believes that there's biblical truth. But because there are so many different interpretations, who's to say which one's true? And if you say that one is true and everybody else is wrong, you're arrogant. Because you're saying you know something that they don't know. You must be saying you're better than them or something of that nature. And how dare you? We should just be loving one another and accepting. And everybody, you know, everybody has their own truth. Right. And from that comes like Schleiermacher, which is we all are, we're all just trying to describe that truth on our own and in, in our own way. So you cannot say, claim that you know it. The evangelical version of that is, is that, no, there really is a truth. It's the Bible. But yeah, who really can understand? It's hard to understand. And, you know, we all have different interpretations. And that must mean that everybody's legitimate because we have multiple interpretations. It couldn't be that people were in sin. Couldn't be that people took stuff out of context. It has to be that they're all legitimate in some way. And so, of course, Ezekiel is in this context that's not even a relativistic context, but it's still offensive even in a day when people believe there was an absolute truth you can know. So imagine how much more today someone claiming this stuff. So he's going to be very offensive to these people. He's going to say these false prophets are false. Uh, they're wrong. They're saying, thus says the Lord, when he didn't say. God's going to flat out say that. Um, it's the imaginations of their mind, not actually him speaking to them. But because of that, Ezekiel is going to be rejected by a lot of people. Other people reject in a different way, though, like we just talked about, which is, Ezekiel, you're great. I'm on board. Let me hear it. That's good stuff. You know, it's like Saul loving to listen to David speak and sing. It's like, man, this is great. Uh, or Herod loving to, you know, hear John the Baptist. It's like, this is great stuff. Man, this guy's a prophet. This is awesome. But they don't actually obey. Who are saved, the hearers of the word or the doers of the word? Yeah. That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The, the wise man at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is not the guy who hears these words. It's the guy who hears these words and does them. The foolish man who builds his house on the sand the, is the guy who hears these words, but he doesn't do them. So that's going to be, I actually think that's probably the bulk of people in the book of Ezekiel, because they recognize Ezekiel's a priest. They can kind of pick up that he's a prophet. They're going to listen to what he says. They're going to actually think he's great and his speech is great, but they're not actually going to do what he says. And so they're going to heap judgment on themselves for it. He uses this imagery of their rebellion. It says that they're hard of face and hard of heart. What you under, Now, what is that imagery? Hard of face. What, why would he use that? Well, the idea that your expression actually can't change. So you have the same expression. You can't change your expression, which then becomes a symbol for the idea that you can't change your life. You won't change. What verse is this? Uh, this is... Uh, yeah, there. Thank you. Heart of heart would mean what? Heart. Yeah, what does heart mean? Mind. 
Yeah, there you go. So what does it mean then? Part of hard mind. They won't change their mind. Yeah, teachable. Right. They don't. They won't change their way of thinking. Uh, they they're going to persist, which is going to lead them to then not change their life. He says something interesting in, in verse 3, but right before that. He actually says, I'm sending you to a rebellious people, so that's part of their hard-heartedness and all that. Um, but then he says, to the goyim who have rebelled against me. This is interesting because... Goyim. Yeah, yeah, but where is goyim yeah. in there? Yeah, he calls them goyim. Where? You don't see it in the, uh, in the in English text. It doesn't, come, okay. it doesn't come over well. <laughs> Yeah, so verse 3. Which word is that word? To nations what? of rebels who have rebelled against me? Yeah, nations. Wait, in verse 3. Or or your your translation may be uh, people. People of Mind Israel it. and to nations of rebels. Okay. Yeah, not not to and there's no and. I so know. it's to to the sons of Israel to the rebellious, the rebellious so I have son of man I'm sending you to the sons of Israel to a rebellious people rebuild. The, the the people is going yeah, so that's obscured because people are trying to figure out why would he call them goyim? Those are Gentiles. So they're like, oh, maybe he just means people. And it's like, that's not the word for people. Um, it's a word for people groups, meaning nations. But uh, so he actually calls them goyim, which then shows they're under judgment as though they do not belong to him. They are not his people. Right, because the Jews had a real bad opinion. Don't make me a woman or a Gentile, right? Or something like that. Right. <laughs> Is that a derogatory term? Yeah. Know yes. Yeah. Okay. It is now, yeah. Yeah, I know it is. Was it here as well? It, it, it is in this text because to call them, instead of, to identify the sons of Israel rather than as Israelites, but as part of the nations, um, he's yeah. letting them know, and he's made them a part of the nations. They're actually in exile. So, um, it's true. yeah, so he's, it's a slap. But he's preaching to these exiles speaking to them right and obviously not just for our fu- the future generations some of these people are going to repent no even though the, the most of them are rebel- rebellious or yeah in general they're not going to it's going to be the next generation that that repents almost like the kind of the wilderness journey so it's like the next generation that makes it that this generation's not going to so make it maybe two yeah ezekiel and one other prophet perhaps well, Ezekiel doesn't need to repent because it doesn't say that he was actually in sin. He's just here because of the, the collective federal headship of the nation and whatnot. So there are people in exile who are righteous people. Mm-hmm. But he's talking about the specific people who are sinning. They're not the ones he's talking to. Yeah. It's the ones who won't listen to him. Right. That are considered Gentiles. Yeah. So they're, they're going to be solidified. Right? To call them Gentiles is to say they're not my people. Right. Which he'll he'll literally say in other prophets. So like say, he'll call them like not my people and whatnot. And so I, I want you to notice that the ministry of Ezekiel, God tells him to do it anyway. No one's going to listen to you. Go do it anyway. Now we'll talk about why that is later because God is going to explicitly say this is why, and it's actually very sobering for all of us, uh, for me as an elder, and for all of you because you are priests to the world and priests to one another, um, it's, it's extremely sobering. I won't mention it now because we'll have a huge conversation about it when we reach that chapter. But um, notice he tells them, don't fear them. Even though you have thorns and thistles and scorpions, even though like you just everything's bad, 
surrounding you. You have no hope. No one's going to listen. It just really looks bad. They're probably going to call you names and all sorts of stuff. You're, you're not to fear them. I mean, he, the prophets have a real fear that they're going to be not only rejected, but maybe even killed. Because, mm-hmm. again, this is offensive. People who think that they're good with God are being told they're not good with God. And it looks like this jerk against all these other teacher, teachers is saying that they're not good with God. Well, you know, who are you? How dare you? And they're offended and whatnot, and they want to get rid of them. Yeah, so this is not preaching to the people on the strip of Las Vegas. This is preaching to the church. This is the church, yeah. All right, um, opening his mouth and eating the scroll, thats I think that's probably pretty obvious imagery there. It just means that he's supposed to digest it himself first for himself. And that's why God says, don't rebel like these people. Don't, don't do what they're doing and not tell them like I told you to tell them. Because now you'd be in disobedience to me. And that's a real, that's a real uh, fear that I think teachers have. We as elders don't want to rebuke you guys. We don't know what we're going to get. Um, and so it's a real fear, but it's very sobering to say, if you don't tell them, then now you're in sin. Uh, now you're in judgment. All right, any comments on two? All right, chapter three. We're just going to do one through 15. Um, I'll go ahead and read it. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach. Fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them. Sorry, I just lost my place. I need my yod. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you, yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they are are not willing to listen to me. That comes out a little different in the Hebrew. He's actually saying, if I had sent you to the people of unintelligible speech, they would have listened. So in other words, if I sent you to the foreigners, they actually would have listened. If you think of like Jonah with Nineveh or something. They would have listened. But you? No, you're not gonna, they're not going to listen. Um, surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. That's that heart of face and heart of heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. What happens when when you're scrolling. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out, sorry, nope, wrong chapter, judge. This is a good case for paper Bibles. No, that's right. I'm almost done. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart, so take into your mind, your thoughts, all my words, which I will speak to you and listen closely. 
Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people. Speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touch one another, and the sound of the wheels behind them, even a great rumbling. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Kibar at Tel Aviv, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. So this is the end of the introduction. That's why it ends with the chariot once again. But notice the chariot is now, it starts up the engine, right? It's moving, and it's moving Ezekiel. So the Spirit of God that was moving the chariot, and the chariot moving, is now moving with Ezekiel to speak to the people. And notice that Ezekiel is made as hard as they are. His face is as hard as they are. He's not going to change his message. No matter what they say, no matter what their response is, this is the word of God, that's it, there's nothing to change. Notice what he says about his spirit. The spirit of God comes over him. This is probably the last thing to say. The spirit of God comes over him. And how is his attitude? Bitter. Bitter and angry. Bitter and angry, yeah. Overwhelmed. That's not very Christian. Well, is he well, angry against their sin? Right, yeah. So this is the, it's because he's eaten the scroll. He's angry against their sin. Right. The scroll is the anger of God, the wrath of God. He's eaten it, so now it becomes a part of him. So it's not just this detached message the prophet's giving. He now feels what God feels, quote unquote. Um, and so the message is coming forth in anger because it's going to be an angry message. And this is going to be, I mean, as we read this, I said this is going to be explicit it's going to hit you over the head. Um, it's going to be grotesque. Um, there are parts that are sexually explicit in order for God to make his point. He's trying to disgust you with the way that God has, uh, with the way the people have, have treated him. Um, and it's a powerful message. And so I hope that, you know, you guys come back next week and we discuss it further. But any other questions on these, these, this introduction? When it talks about in the heat of my spirit, I'm verse 14 right after bitterness is that like zeal like being zealous yeah so a lot of people try to do it with zeal it literally is it's actually the idea of anger oh um yeah so that's where like he's in other words he's he's hot enraged yeah enraged it's not like zeal no it's like he is angry so that's why he goes when he finally sits among the exiles he's just like overwhelming yeah he's just like sitting there and yeah and and um not not speaking to them for seven days Any other questions, comments? Should we read ahead? Yeah. Yeah, Re- read ahead and um, I want to say read until chapter, like through chapter four. Three and four, the rest of Yeah, the rest of three four. and four. Um, if I look at it and I'm like, you know, we should go past that, I'll, we'll go past it. But I think just the rest of three and four for right now. Revelation was an eye opener when I we, we went through yeah. that and realizing what the message actually was. Yeah. Just this 
weird hocus pocus book. It's just not. It's not. It's not madness. It's. I was a I was a youth minister in um, Indiana uh, after Moody for a period of time, and for a Presbyterian minister who had been in the ministry his whole life, a TCUSA guy, and they studied more academically or whatever. Uh, but he knew I wanted to go on to be a professor, and he would constantly be like, "When you learn what Ezekiel's about, let me know." Like even even pastors after years of ministry are just like, "I don't know what this book is about." But just, as I just showed you, though, if you understand the background. Like, one is weird and confusing until you understand the background, and it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, Revelation is that way in, in many ways. So, Daniel. Yeah, same thing with Dan. Daniel's weird until you actually then look at it, and you're like, you see it, and you're like, oh, yeah, that, that all makes sense. We haven't talked through Daniel in a while, actually. I thought I was going to say, that's, that's my favorite book of mine. Oh, is it? Yeah. I did a whole series. I, I went through the book. Real. But it was years ago. <laughs> you ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No one wants to go through Daniel with me because it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Actually, we, you, those we have the sermons on that. It's online. Yeah, it should be online. With those books, because I know Revelation pulls from Ezekiel, but with these um, <laughs> these books, like I don't even know how you would describe them, but... Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. Right. Would, uh, is there a lot of textual transfer or contextual transfers that you can use with that? Or are they yeah. like very separate? No. Um, so I don't know if Daniel will draw from Ezekiel as much. There is, I mean, you have a lot of the imagery because it's Mesopotamian imagery or whatever that's being used. Revelation is going to draw from Ezekiel and Daniel and, you know, and uh, Zechariah and those books. Um there's not a lot of interaction. There's more in common with Jeremiah and Ezekiel because it's talking to the same people. Um, there's a lot of commonality between those, even though they're written at different time periods or whatever within the exile. Jeremiah's before the exile, Ezekiel's after the exile. <clears throat> or Ezekiel's during the exile, sorry. So yeah, there's not a lot of inner, but, but Daniel's kind of its own thing. Okay. Yeah. All right, anything else? All right, let's end in a uh, word of prayer. And uh, Luke, you want to pray for us? Sure. Dear God, thank you so much for uh, allowing us to be here together to, to learn about your word, to dissect it, to understand what you are uh, trying to say through through the uh, events that happened. Um, and that we, uh, we as well as internalize it and to, uh, to change our hearts. Um, and towards you and, and name we pray. Amen.